This is Adam Lippi, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSinceria.com, and this is my interview with Danny Boudet, the writer-director of Five Star Day. Now, I'm totally aware that most people will not have heard of this film, Mr. Boudet's first feature. That's because Five Star Day has received a limited theatrical release November 4th, simultaneously also released on Facebook. The movie itself, which is rather complicated, it's going to be a lengthy explanation, is about a grad student, played by Cam Gigande, who is trying to disprove astrology for his ethics class. His paper is called, and I quote, a propaganda campaign of bullshit. And within 24 hours, despite his horoscope reading that he's supposed to have a five-star day, his life completely falls apart. So his plan is to prove that astrology is bullshit by finding three other people who were born in the same Chicago hospital within a few minutes of him. He finds their addresses, and he flies out from L.A. to Chicago to meet uh, First Jenna Malone, and who's a bartender with a young child and a troubled relationship with the father of that child. That comes up a little later in the interview, and the character's name is Luke Greenfield, so don't get confused. There's also, uh, he, he meets another person, who's a well-adjusted nurse who lives in Chicago, and he goes to Atlantic City and meets a lounge singer who was also born within the same few minutes as he was in the Chicago hospital. Now, keep in mind that he's never talked to any of these people before, so his arrival is going to be, at minimum, a surprise. Now, other than that lengthy description I just gave, the actual conversation with Mr. Boudet, there are some spoilers about the fate of the lounge singer, and who's played by uh, the real-life singer Max Hartman, who actually does give the most interesting and playful performance in the film. Danny and I also discuss how wise it is to hand in a paper with a title such as A Propaganda Campaign of Bullshit, especially uh, when your professor, who is played by the underused but great character actor Nick Chinlin has told you that you need an A just to pass the class. And then we also talk about the questionable idea of showing up on people's doorstep unannounced and uh, asking personal questions. And uh, whether the marginal believability of certain plot points turns the film into more of a romantic fantasy. So please enjoy. Did you go to college or grad school or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to undergrad at Long Beach State, Casa Long Beach, mm-hmm. here in California, and then I ended up going to graduate school at the American Film Institute. Okay. And I got an MFA from AFI, yeah. So if you handed sure. in a, a paper that was called a propaganda campaign of bullshit, did you really think you'd get an A? He definitely would probably give me a hard time by just turning in the, the subject matter, you know, the, the initial topic choice. But hopefully by the time they see the presentation, he would maybe get an A. Right, but isn't, what's weird about the scene is that his presentation is going to be totally different from his paper. Right, that his mission statement, if you will, is the opposite of what he's about to say. Right, so there's no way he would get an A, is there? So he's going to fail the class. You set up a false premise. Well, I, I actually think that it's, that that is depending on how you look at it. You know, I, I don't think personally that an ethics professor, for example, who writes that exact quote on the board is going to not see what that student is trying to say. Right. No, no, I, I'm, 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 I'm being silly with over you. Over what is, yeah. I, I didn't, well, no, I'm saying what I think he, I didn't take your, the end. I didn't take your right. movie literally most of the time. I mean, <laughs> I did, but in the sense that believability I know was not on the top of the list, right? Well, I, I gotta tell you, every fact in the film is true, and all of the research having to do with astrology and NATO charts and all of that is very factual. Now, what I will say is, at the at the end, when he's giving his presentation to the ethics professor and to the class, what my intention with that scene is to basically say that 
while horoscopes and astrology might point you or guide you in a certain direction, it's actually the choices that an individual makes that kind of guides their destiny. And I think that's what the professor is looking at at the end for his grade and giving him an A, not necessarily his mission statement. You know, and that's purposely actually why I have him kind of writing on the board consequences versus what we say. If you leave class, you graduate, and all of these kind of things. I think the professor is wise enough to understand that what he's saying has a lot of subtext. That sometimes you can look at somebody and say, I hate you, and really mean I love you, if you, if you get what I'm saying. Was there a reason that he didn't just call any of these people before he left? Well, I guess that's part of the journey would be he could just email them. But if I had gone through that day, I'd like a lot more satisfaction. And that's purposely why I put the scene with the boss. Says, Take a trip. Go on vacation. You know, you're young. Get out of town, basically. It's a journey, and I think he recognizes that. In the day and age of Facebook and Twitter, he could have probably easily, you know, just emailed them and found it out. But that wouldn't, for me at least, been a satisfying. And so, yeah, he could have definitely picked up a phone and called them. He emailed them. He could have definitely gone an easier route. But for my satisfaction at least doing an ethics class, if I was going to do it myself, I would want to actually physically meet the people. Especially, it's kind of a, I guess, a more... No, no, what I, what I meant is, call them and say, hey, I'm going to be here, would you like to meet me? So it wasn't, so he didn't show up like he was, like, stalking them, like a surprise, which is how they viewed it. And I tried to go about it and how I thought his character, given the day that he went about it, would approach. In my opinion, that's where I thought his character would approach now, about midway through the movie, I mean, it starts out as sort of a, a light film, and then it drifts into the stuff with the the lounge singer. Is he, is he really supposed to be 27 or 29 years old? Because he doesn't look it. I mean, he's, he gives a good performance, but he looked way well, older. Well, he's dying of cancer. So that was one of the aspects that I was going for, was that this character is dying of cancer. So I didn't feel the need to make him look 23. Because okay. Jenna's younger than, you know, right. way younger than all of them. Right. But it seemed to go down a sort of darker road around that point. Like, it seems like it's going to be a harder-edged movie, and it almost seems like it's going to turn into a gay love story, which actually might have been pretty interesting. But was there an instinct, like, I'm going to make, you know, this light movie and then just drift into a different direction? No, or... I mean, the script was always, it, it's very close. The shooting script is very similar to the final movie. So, no, the tone was always to make a movie that initially has, listen, we're not just tell people, anybody, the pitch of this movie the guy sits on a journey to disprove the theory of astrology. It sounds like a on broad comedy. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of making it was to not make a simple broad comedy about a subject that a lot of people take seriously. And so I wanted to kind of delve in the subject matter, but then really explore other territories. So I was very intentional with the tone of the film, for sure. One of the, I mean, obviously, you know, you didn't have $100 million to make this, but a lot of the money, obviously, besides, you know, the cast, the soundtrack had to have been very pricey. How did you manage to get all that under your budget? Because I heard an Interpol song. I heard a number of other songs that I was like, oh, wow, that couldn't have been cheap. Yeah, um, actually, I have a lot of friends in the local music scene in Los Angeles, and so I was able to kind of tap into, I'm really close friends with the Henry Clay people in particular, who gave me three of their tracks for the film. Uh, my cousin is Tristan, who's a really strong singer up and coming. She gave me a track for the film. She's kind of blowing up in the national scene. About 12 of the songs and bands in the film I know personally, so that was kind of... Oh, so the, that... the Interpol song was the one you only the only one you had to spend money on then? Well, actually, funny enough, once we kind of had some of the smaller bands, we were able to, in a spiderweb fashion, reach out to even 
the bigger bands like Doves and Guster, et cetera, and get really good quotes. I mean, we were able to get the music budget down very small for a movie of this size. And, and it was all due to the beautiful, thankful favors of them. And, and again, I think artists, especially like, for example, the, the Doves, for, uh, Doves are a great example where we edited the scene together and through a couple of band connections, sent them the visual and showed them the scene at a time and tried to get the band excited. And that ended up because a lot of times the labels would, you know, try to come back with a higher quote. And if the band really loves it and wants to be in the film, they're artists. They want to make it happen. So. Right. Now, when you were thinking of this movie, did you pitch it, in it, or in your brain anyway, as sort of like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure minus the phone booth? I've never thought of it from a standpoint, no. You, you get what I'm saying? Like, their whole thing is a, is a personal journey, and they use the phone booth to go back in time to find all these yeah, people. Yeah, no, Because the more obvious comparison is, like, high fidelity for grad students. Well, high fidelity for grad students, stalkers, really. But Sure, I, I really like high fidelity, by the way. So I, I think that, that that would definitely be a closer reference. I think John Cusack is another great chicago actor and i think high fidelity was a great film so no i do too, I, I do i do too but but because that's the more obvious like correlation and the connection between the but bill and ted seemed sort of in the back of my mind while i was watching it um <laughs> so i'm watching the film and i'm 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 thinking you know it's a good thing these people are all good looking because now they wouldn't they wouldn't fall in love if they weren't is there like a good looking gene in this particular part of the hospital that makes everyone prettier than normal, or is that just movie casting? Uh, I think it, uh, it's CW casting, potentially. Okay. Uh, maybe they live in a CW episode. Okay. You know, because if she was ugly, you know, he's screwed, right? Who, Cam? With, with Yvette Montgomery, or, or which character in particular? No, no, no. If, if, if uh, Jenna Malone is, is, is ugly, like, you know, if her, not her, but her character is, like, played by a, a less attractive person, right. you don't have an ending, he's right? Screwed. Yeah, he's screwed. I mean, it, it, I guess it depends. If it's truly all in the stars, I would like to think he's not quite superficial. Because I would, a lot of people argue that Juliana Gill is more attractive than Jenna Malone. I say that could be a hot or not contest, if you will. Right, no, well, yes. What I'm what I'm getting at is, it's a good thing she's attractive, Jenna Malone. It's a good thing she doesn't. She isn't a three on the ten scale. What I'm getting at is like. Imagine if, if if she was unattractive. It, actually, it might it might make it actually more bold if he was just willing to go on these sort of fate notion. But it's a good thing that she is attractive because then he doesn't have to worry about it. Yeah, well, it's an interesting way to look at it. Maybe it would have been in the stars with him either way. Right. Is that how you sort of justify the conclusion sort of being, you know, a little contrived and then the, the whole thing with, like, going to New York and finding the ex and it, it happened to stumble upon a drug deal? I mean, how does that work in, in terms of... Cause well, it's... my thought is, you know, if I was Aaron Greenfield, buying drugs in New York, and I'm, you know, it seems like a plausible situation, sure, but no, kind of the point to us was that sometimes things happen in life that seem out of our control and seem a little bit serendipitous, if you will, and it's once we're... Because he could easily have gotten on the plane and not gotten under the Holland Tunnel and gone and tried to look for that Hilton. He knew that it's in New York, and it is the Hilton. There's only one Hilton in New York, so anybody who has an iPhone can just Google Hilton, and there's only one Hilton in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So it's easy for them to actually find the hotel, and the rest is him going to the front desk and asking for it. But those are all his decisions. He could have easily said, you know what, fuck it, I'm already right here. There's Newark Airport. I'm just going to get on the plane, and we'll go back home, and she can kind of figure it out. And that's kind of what's pulled with his actions and kind of the decisions that he makes to go, you know what? I'm going to go to the Holland Tunnel. I'm going to go to the Scott Wood I'm going to 
go see if I can find this guy, is why he's rewarded, if you will, by the bad day turning itself around and actually winding up. Well, I meant more of it was drifting into no, fantasy because the, the conclusion suggests that he flew back to Chicago, even though he wasn't employed, didn't have any money, and it just you know had to move in with his friend. So the, the suggestion is it's sort of like, oh, we've gone into sort of more of a romantic fantasy at that point. Why live life if you can't live it with a romance? I mean, I know plenty of people who have sold everything to go present their heart to somebody. So I think that's part of the beauty of the film is that he gets on a plane and he goes and he gives the necklace to her in person. I wish more people had the balls in this day and age to have romance, to put it all on the line and tell somebody exactly what they want and actually go out and get it no matter what. So no, I don't think that's drifting into fantasy at all. In fact, I think that's the best decision he makes in the movie is actually recognizing that what he wants is in Chicago and nothing else matters other than getting on a plane and telling that person that that's what he wants. Because what you're suggesting is that it is attempted, you know, it is, it's a ballsy move on his part. But you're, it's gone not necessarily towards complete fantasy, but closer to magical realism. Is that what you were going for? No, I don't know how that's a fantasy at all. I know plenty of unemployed people who would put their heart on the line for somebody they love. So I don't understand how that's fantasy. I don't think that's fantasy at all. I got to tell you, I disagree with your point in this regard. That's all right. The lounge singer character, I, know, I noticed that he's a, he's a singer in real life. But, Correct. But uh, you, when when he's listening to the music in the car, that didn't sound like him because they because you played some other a, a different track, obviously. Did you? No. That was him. And I was there when he recorded it. Yeah. Oh, it didn't sound like him, so that's why I, I thought it yeah, was some. Yeah, in credits, so you did. Yeah, no, it's Max Hartman. Yeah, no, I figured you used one of his songs somewhere in the movie, not like perhaps when he was uh, on stage, but I meant like when he's listening to the CD in the car. Yeah, no, that's what I'm talking about. It's a song called Crying. It's a beautiful song about, and in fact, there's a lyric that he sings in the song that we wrote specifically for the movie mm -hmm. where it says, and I can't believe he's dying. And it's right when I show the CD cover art. It's kind of a give away the hint that he's dying. Mm -hmm. Because I use the lyric, I can't believe, you know, when you can't believe you're dying. And I show the visual of Cam actually looking at the CD cover while he's driving in the car on that exact line. And, you know, that's all Max Hartman, and it's a phenomenal, he's a phenomenal, so we'll come up with a new LP at the end of this year, in middle December. Okay. So look out for it, it's going to be awesome. And it's going to have time on it, so look out for it, he's, he's a really talented performer. And that's him actually scatting a live take, and not only the jazz club, but that's a live take of him as well performing the Frank Sinatra song. That's just done with an iPod on set. Oh, I figured. Well, I mean, I didn't think he was lip-syncing. I mean, at first you think he's lip-syncing, and then you realize he's probably not lip-syncing. He's a phenomenal singer. He's a really an untapped talent. Like, well, I what I mean by the lip-syncing is you assume that his act is part of, like, he's like a Sinatra impressionist until sure, you realize him. Sure. In fact, the first time I met him, that's what I thought. I, I met him, uh, I was flying to Mexico for a destination wedding, and I actually met Max Hartman. He was the entertainment at the wedding. And he was, I thought, I was like, wow, that guy's doing a really good job lip-syncing to Frank Sinatra. It sounds amazing. But I thought he was lip-syncing. And I was in the back of the wedding party. I started walking closer and closer, and I started realizing, this guy is for real. I fully believe in my heart, if that guy was born 40 years ago, he would have been Frank Sinatra. He, he's got it. He is the real deal. His voice is phenomenal. No, his voice is really good. I agree. One of the strange things about the, the whole journey for Cam's character is that from the outside, he's completely obnoxious and he's almost like totally inconsiderate of everyone's feelings but 
because he's the protagonist, we're sort of following him. How did you manage to balance that without ever like drifting into, wow, what a, what a selfish prick who's, who's not worrying about anybody else? I think that he's not acting like, a, you know, if I had the date he had, I think I would. I think he handles it in a very, you know, tasteful way. I really don't think he acts like a prick in the film. I don't know. No, his go- he doesn't act like a, well, he's inconsiderate at the minimum, but in the sense. And what part do you think that he's considered? Well, obviously he should have contacted them first, but separate from that, just the way that he acts. Contacted first, I think he's, okay, sure. I mean, but we already covered that. So separate from the way that he should have done that first, the way that he's sort of presumptuous that they should give him this stuff. And I'm saying, like, considering the world we're in, that's fine. But it was like, if I were making this, like, how would I how would I weigh that? Like, if this is about his character arc or he's going to change only slightly throughout the film, like, how are we presenting him as, you know, say, less than courteous? If I, I guess I could put it that way. Now, he's he's courteous towards these people, really but, but his pres- he, the way he's presenting it is is kind of obnoxious. See, I guess we're disagreeing on how he's presenting it, so I don't know that I can accurately reflect on your question if I don't understand that, that you and I aren't coming at it from the same perspective, because I don't think he's inconsiderate as he approaches them. In fact, like you pointed out earlier, there's a hint of being slightly uncomfortable with Max Cartman that I think is genuinely endearing that he doesn't know how to approach a guy and ask him, hey, look, I don't know you, you don't know me, I'm not going to stalk you and call you, because, A, how would how stalkerish would it have sounded if he looked up these people's phone numbers in some random way? Hey, how did you get my number? I think it comes off much more endearing how he approaches Max Hartman. If at Montgomery, that kind of is the point. He comes up in innocent as a new approach. He's very innocent in his approach. I don't think he comes across as snotty or, you know, in any way insincere. So I, I, since I disagree with your initial assumption that... Well, but he didn't, he didn't just call them. What he did was show up at their house. That's even, that's even weirder. Well, I guess we disagree on a couple points there. If the creepy step is calling them, showing up at their house is, is a little beyond that. Well, listen, we've been, we clearly disagree on a couple points. Okay, that's all right. Oh, I guess I had a question about uh, distribution, because I know that uh, Breaking Glass said that this was going to be sort of like a simultaneous like Facebook and theatrical and all sorts of places release before going to DVD in a couple of months. Is that right? Correct. How do you approach that sort of thing? Because obviously it's like when you release something simultaneously in the theater and on Facebook or in any uh, multiple formats like Magnolia does, you're going to hurt theatrical grosses. But obviously this is not ever really going to be like a you know $100 million movie. Do you just go, well, it's getting into the theater. That's what I care about. Like, how do you how do you feel about like that sort of negotiation? Because I think it's, it's exciting. It's, because, like, for example, most people wouldn't normally get a chance to see this movie who live outside of some of the metropolitan areas, like outside of Los Angeles. Even if I did done an indie movie like a Like Crazy, mm-hmm. which is going to get seen in L.A. and New York, mm-hmm. much more out of the fact that people all over can get a chance to see a movie, and especially in a time where it's much harder to you know raise the profile and raise your flag high enough for people to see your stuff. It's going to actually be able to expose isolated people and have it have an opportunity to actually be seen by more people. And for me as an artist, that's what I'm most excited about is that we're going to get a chance to see a film. Who People who live near the city theaters are still going to get to see it as well. Like friends of mine have already seen it you know, at the Lemley here in L.A., and that's great because they get to see it here. But friends of mine who live 
in, you know, more rural areas, or a friend of mine who lives in Richmond, Virginia, was able to see it yesterday as well. So that was exciting. Did you have initial thoughts about, like, four-walling it instead, or, like, just taking it from city to city, or, or this was, when you, were, when you were presented with this idea, you were like, yes, that's what, you know. Yeah, I was really excited to get on the forefront of, you know, a huge distribution platform with the way technology is changing. Yeah, I fully think that that is the way it's going to be shaking down. I'm very excited to be, you know, on the cusp. It's exciting for me as an artist to just get a chance to have more people get to see the movie.